Friends, we are indeed in Psalm 34. What a precious psalm. What a psalm worth printing out, putting next to your bathroom mirror, putting it on your dashboard, thinking on this, meditating on this. I feel like every verse in this psalm deserves a sermon in its own right. I heard from a pastor this week who uh, posted that in this um, climate today, it's, it must be true that everybody we encounter throughout our day is feeling overwhelmed and under-encouraged. Like nobody woke up this morning waiting to hear the criticism you have for them, right? None of us did. I didn't do that. We're desperate for a word of grace, and Psalm 34 is that word. But I'm only going to jump into one verse, Psalm 34, verse 19, and we are going to dig and dig and dig into this marrow of this thing until we can claim this promise and walk out of here with it. So look at Psalm 34, 19. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Let's pray together. Lord, could that even be true? Is that even possible? Does that even make sense when we are experiencing so much pain and heartbreak? For this word to land in our hearts, your Holy Spirit must come, must do a supernatural work, must confirm it in our hearts so that we can bank our lives on your love and your goodness for us in Christ. But since you love to do that, and since you do that all the time, that's an easy prayer to make. And so we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, it's a small verse. It's a simple verse. I see three key words in this verse that we got to get a handle on these words. And if we get these words, then we're going to understand how the whole thing unfolds for us. And the three words I'm looking at are righteous, afflictions, and deliverance. Who are the righteous? What are these afflictions and how on earth is the Lord going to deliver the righteous from these afflictions? So that's the three words, kind of the three points of this sermon. We're going to jump right in with righteous. Who are the righteous? Who are we even talking about? Our verse says that the Lord delivers the righteous, but if we don't know who the righteous are, we don't know who the Lord is delivering and that will make no sense to us. That's like saying the Samani have the healthiest hearts in the world. That's a true fact. And you say, well, that's great, but who on earth are the Samani? And I'm surprised you didn't know this, but they're an obscure ethnic people, Amazonian people group, who because of their lifestyle and diet have almost no cholesterol buildup in their arteries, and they're all walking around with the hearts of 20-year-olds. That's great. Good for the Samani people. Like if I ever meet one, I'll congratulate them. That's great. Happy for them. Now you're telling me the righteous are going to be delivered out of all their trials and afflictions. Great news for the righteous. So happy to hear that. If I ever meet a righteous person, I will tell her she's got good news in store for her because the Lord delivers. What are we talking about? Because when I look around this room, I don't see any Samani, and I'm not sure I see any righteous because we've spent some time together, right? And I know you, and you know me, and 
we're a dysfunctional family, like a little Barney, um, which is a euphemism to say we have seen the darkness in each other. If we have butted heads, if we've rubbed shoulders, we've seen the darkness that lurks in each of us that manifests itself in fleshly desires to want what I want, to have what I'm going to have, to represents itself in the way that the evil one can so easily beset us with the same temptation again and again. It shows itself in the way that we fall for the same sins, the same lies, the same terrors over and over and over. That darkness is deep within us and there are born-again Christians in this room who are supposed to be a half a degree more righteous than everybody else in their neighborhood that have things in their hearts and their minds and their life that they want nobody, and I mean nobody, to know about. That's what we feel this morning. So everybody knows the rule about preaching, and that is when it doesn't apply, you tune out. You walk in this morning and the preacher is preaching on marriage, well then all the single people, they can tune out. And if he's preaching on singleness, well, then all the married people, they can tune out. And if he's preaching on the righteous, well, then everybody in the room can tune out because that's not me. I don't know who he's talking about. But we, before we go there, there are actually some parallels in this psalm, some other synonyms for the righteous that will help us understand just who the psalmist is talking about. Right before our verse, in verse 18, It says, who gets help from the Lord? It's the brokenhearted. And after our verse, in verse 22, who gets spared by the Lord? It's the servants of the Lord. So the righteous can also be called the brokenhearted, and they can also be called the servants of the Lord. This is all like poetic parallelism. But I think a Christian would be more comfortable with the title brokenhearted or servant than they would be with the title righteous. I know I am, but why is that true? If I call myself brokenhearted, I like that because I get to define myself in the kingdom by what I'm not. And if I define myself as a servant, I like that because I'm saying what I do for God and not what he does for me. But if I'm going to grab a hold of this title, righteous, that's a title I can't earn, I don't deserve. It comes from outside of myself and it makes me feel like a hypocrite. I don't like that word. But is that not the gospel? where I come to the end of myself and I come to the end of what I was calling righteousness in my former life and I come on my face before the Lord and say whatever it is, I don't have it and I need it and he receives my sin upon himself on the cross and in its stead, he actually gives me, imputes to me, clothes me with the very righteousness of Christ. I'm not just forgiven. I'm not just a back to where I started. I am clothed in the pure, spotless, eternal righteousness of Christ. We heard that in our assurance in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that we might become what? 
put on the righteousness of Christ. Romans 4.24, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So when we're talking about the righteous in Psalm 34, we are talking about a born-again believer who has openly confessed their sin, repentant of it before God, and in its stead received from him his righteousness. Every Christian, whether they feel it or not, think it or not, believe it or not, is righteous in God's sight. The Christian is the righteous. Well, that's fantastic. Now, all of a sudden, it applies to everybody in this room because if you came here as a born-again believer, you can sit up and take notice, this Psalm 34, this is for me. This is a promise for me. And if I came here this morning and I don't believe in Christ and I don't know what it means to become a Christian, I'm sitting up and taking notice. Wait a minute, what's this promise that God is giving those whom he claims in his gospel? Everybody who's born again, they are the righteous. I love that word. That's a fun word now. It's a word that Christ gives me now. I like that word, but I don't like our second word in this psalm, afflictions. Righteousness, that gives me warm and fuzzy feelings, but afflictions, I'd rather that not be here. But you got to help me out, church, because I left my glasses at home. How many are the afflictions of the righteous? That was terrible. Everybody put your nose in your ESV Bible. How many are the afflictions of the righteous? How many are the afflictions of the righteous? Not a few, not a couple, not here and there, not maybe next year. Many, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Is that what you signed up for? Did anybody tell you when they sat across from you and did the bridge illustration that when you get to God's side, away from man's side, waiting for you on that side is many afflictions. When I receive the warm embrace of Christ at conversion, I am all but guaranteed hardship, heartache, sickness, affliction in this new life in Christ. Did I know that going into this? Because we're learning two valuable things here this morning from this psalm. Christians are among the righteous and we're learning that Christians are among the afflicted. Now there's a fake gospel out there that doesn't teach this. In fact, it teaches the opposite. It's false. It's not from here. It's not from the Bible. It's alive and well today. It's the so-called prosperity gospel. Have you guys heard this? And basically it puts faith and afflictions on a seesaw. And if you have faith, you're going to have less afflictions. And if you have afflictions, it must mean you don't have faith because those two things don't go together. So God rewards those who are obedient and have faith in him, and he gives them very few afflictions. But God punishes and disciplines those who aren't obedient and don't have faith, and they have all kinds of afflictions. Now, I'll tell you that we Presbyterians have the greatest theology in the world. 
And most of you who have joined this church are not Presbyterian. You don't come from Presbyterianism, but you're in a building that has that word, welcome to Presbyterianism. We don't fall for that, right? We stay away from seesaws. We don't believe in that. Playgrounds don't even have seesaws anymore. Those are dangerous things. We know, and we can point to a bunch of places in Scripture that super godly people have really bad things happen to them, right? That happens everywhere, Old Testament to New Testament, Noah, Daniel, Esther, Ruth, Job, John the Baptist, um, a guy named Jesus who was super faithful and awful things happened to him. That theology is junk, and where it preys on the poor, it is from the pit of hell itself, and we want nothing to do with that. But I'll tell you something crazy as a Presbyterian. Like, I believe that, and I can preach a sermon on that, and the prosperity gospel can become my punching bag, and I can go home, and on Monday, I get a bill in the mail that I didn't expect, and I don't have money to pay for it. And you know what my first thought is? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What are you doing? I thought all things worked together for good for those who trusted in you. I thought you were my refuge and my strong tower. I thought you were for me. Where are you when I am suffering? Has anybody experienced that? Has anybody felt that? You have a pristine theology, but the moment hardship happens, the moment Seth's kid is freaking out, the moment things aren't going my way and I feel that tension, it's like, Lord, where are you? I thought we were good. I thought we were doing this together. You can have a tight theology and a lousy practice. You can have impeccable doctrine and you cannot put a single piece of that into practice. And so it's good to come together and bend over our Bibles this morning and read once again, many are the afflictions of the righteous. If you came this morning and you are plagued with afflictions, many afflictions, you are in good company among the righteous. Psalm 34 names just a few of these afflictions. Fear, shame, poverty, troubles, hunger, wants, broken hearts, crushed spirits, condemnation. I mean, that pretty much covers everything we experience, whether it's an enemy from without or it's circumstances or it's the devil or it's our own besetting sin. All of that is falling in this great big word, affliction. And Psalm 34 is telling us something marvelous but hard to believe. So sit up and listen in the spirit what God says to you this morning. You can be uh, ashamed, impoverished, afflicted, troubled, addicted believer and be at the center of God's affection for you. Do you know that? Because you didn't get there on your own righteousness and you don't stay there on your own righteousness. This is a grace apart from you and your whole world can be crumbling 
and you are at the center of God's will for you, and you are at the center of his affections for you, and in the gospel, you are his. This psalm is asking us to do something crazy, and that is take that word affliction and take the love of God and hold those two things in tension. And the moment you pick them both up, the devil wants to sneak in between them and say, wait a minute, if bad things are happening, maybe God is not for you, and maybe he doesn't love you, and you run to your Bible, to Psalm 34, and you pull this thing out and say, no. I stand among the righteous. I'm getting the afflictions that God promised that I would have. God is here in my affliction. In fact, I love that verse, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Now, why would he even say that? Because we have our theology and we know that God is omnipresent. And we know that he's outside and he's inside and he's in us and he's in this space and he's going to be there tomorrow and he was here yesterday. He's at my home. He's in all places. But the Lord knows that doctrine is not enough and he wants you to hear. The Lord actually makes himself especially near to the brokenhearted. He's here in our pain, in our affliction. He's not just near to us although that's more than we deserve, that he would come and attend to us in our affliction, that last word is this triumphant gospel word, he delivers. The Lord delivers them out of them all. Now that's not just hyperbole, that's not just David in a moment of passion writing this psalm. He says it four times in this psalm. For the righteous, their faces shall never be ashamed. Save them out of all his troubles. Delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord delivers them out of them all. And even as I say that, and even as I say it in a room that has experienced so much brokenheartedness, I get a little bit of pastoral panic. Because there are people in this room who have lost jobs in the pandemic and they're not getting that job back and they're not even getting a better paid job after this. And there are people in this room, friends whose marriages are in turmoil and their spouse is halfway out the door and they will leave and they're not coming back. And there are those of us in this room who have a diagnosis or a chronic pain that we suffer from. And even after we read this psalm and pray this psalm, the pain gets worse, the diagnosis gets worse, and we're not getting better. And you put a psalm like this into our flesh and blood, earth reality, and God stands to look pretty bad here. Like he's making a promise he can't keep. But I want us to think for just a moment, even as sinful human beings, what our greatest desire for each other is. Like once I could scrape away the dross and once I could get to the heart of what I want for myself and my kids and my spouse and my friends and my roommates and my neighbor, what do I want for them? And that is that they would be happy and whole in Christ. Isn't that it? What else could you add? What else is worth the world? 
What else would you put a footnote to being happy and whole in Jesus, in this life, and for life evermore? Which means I can have a friend in chronic pain who is growing in happiness and wholeness in Jesus, or I could have a friend who has a clean bill of health who's far from Jesus, and that's the hard, easiest decision I'll ever make. Whatever it takes, make this dear friend happy and whole in Christ. So it is with God. We get to pray for deliverance. We get to ask for deliverance, but God won't give us the deliverance we always think we need in a moment. The deliverance that we want, he will give us precisely the deliverance that we need. We can pray that prayer and he might surprise us and answer it, or he might surprise us and answer it in a different way, but he will achieve his purpose for us, which is to make us happy and whole in Christ, which is to bring us together with the righteous and to be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 34, no matter what else is happening, I can say with verse 10, I lack no good thing. I don't have a job. I don't have health. I'm not comfortable with my body. I'm not comfortable with my addiction. I'm troubled. Nobody knows my sorrow. I can say with verse 10 in Jesus Christ, but actually, I lack no good thing. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 8, even in affliction. Our verse has this little messianic footnote that comes in the very next line. It's the very next verse, and it seems a little out of place. I remember when I first became a Christian, when I was 18, and I started reading my Bible, and somebody told me, Jesus doesn't just show up in the New Testament. You can actually find him in the Old Testament. Man, that was wild. And I was looking through my Bible. It's like a needle in the haystack. Where's Jesus? And here's a mention of a colt over here and 30 pieces of silver over here. And it's like, where's Waldo? And I found him. And that was cool. And now 20 years later, reading my Bible, Jesus is everywhere. It's like finding hay in a haystack. I can't get a page done without something resonating with this eternal redemptive plan for the church and for the world. He's everywhere. So now I'm not even surprised that I just said the word deliverance and in the very next verse, we have a reference to Jesus. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You can see why I missed that as a new believer and thought, man, I've broken bones. This is not applying to me. I was halfway right. There is a graphic scene when Jesus is crucified. He's crucified along two criminals, and we know that Jesus gives up his spirit on his own accord, and he dies. But the Roman soldiers do what they've always done, and that is, once they've been tortured enough, they come around and kill the prisoners and they do that by breaking their legs so that anybody who's hanging on a cross can't use their legs to lift themselves and get a breath of air and the soldiers come and they break the two criminals legs and they suffocate and die and they come to Jesus and they're about to break his legs 
and they notice he's dead, and they don't do it. They don't even do it just in case. They stab him instead. And the Apostle John is standing there, as we read in our reading this morning, and he says, oh my goodness, I know what this means. Like back in Exodus chapter 12, the second book of the Bible, God gave a way of salvation through a Passover lamb that it would be killed and its blood would be spread around the doorposts and anybody who claims the blood of the lamb would be saved, but you couldn't bring your worst lamb to sacrifice it, although that would be nice because it's going to die. It had to be an unblemished lamb with not a single bone broken. And David the psalmist picks up that promise and repeats it so many years later. And John remembers the Apostle John, what John the Baptist said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and says, oh my goodness, behold, it's the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so I tell you, saints, Christians, those numbered among the righteous, made righteous in Christ. If God is able to do this, if he's able to keep a 1,000-year-old promise to keep any of the bones of the Messiah from being broken, is he not able to freely also give us all things? And if the Lord brought you here this morning and is able to prepare the Lord's table, which Psalm 23 is, in the presence of your enemies, whether those enemies come from without or they come from within circumstances or sin, is he not in control of all things? And if he brought you here this morning on a Labor Day weekend where you'd rather be on the lake or mourning Clemson's loss, but you're here, and of all the 31,000 verses in the Bible, the Lord brought this one, and the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you is nodding the past 20 minutes saying, this is true, this is God's word, you can bank your life on it. Could we not believe that even though many are the afflictions of the righteous, the Lord delivers him out of them all. Let's pray together. Jesus, let us hang on to a promise like this so that we can realize that it is you who is hanging on to us, protecting us, holding us, keeping us in your perfect, gracious, loving care. Let us be a people who believe that in our afflictions you are very near and very ready to deliver. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.